Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today is Epiphany Sunday, where we celebrate the coming of the wise men to the baby Jesus and his parents. We'll also consider the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Was he an American prophet, a provocateur? He was a troublemaker, but was it good trouble? Join us for the message, What MLK Did Not Say, brought to us by our Minister of Worship, the Reverend Dr. Garth Baker Fletcher. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., American prophet or provocateur? He was a troublemaker, but was it good trouble? We'll be exploring that later and for, in our message, What MLK Did Not Say, brought to us by our minister of worship, Garth Baker Fletcher. We have three scriptures this morning. They're all from the Hebrew prophets. The first one comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our second reading is from the prophet Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then finally from the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, saints. Good morning, morning, saints. Good morning. Amen. That's what I want to hear. I am weaving my way through this wonderful passageway called the altar area. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I needed that. Today I'm going to talk about someone that I wrote... I was always fascinated with all my life. One of the first voices that I heard that I remember hearing, besides my parents' voice, was this wonderful baritone voice through the TV. And every time that he came on the TV, no matter where anybody was in the house, the word would go out, Dr. King, Dr. King is on television. And everybody would run wherever, the kitchen, living room, basement. You'd have people were coming to hear Dr. King. So let us pray as we consider this Baptist minister who seemed to turn the world upside down. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the people of God who want to celebrate you and to learn from you and all of your servants, all the people that have claimed to have you as their Lord and Savior. Bless me. 
that I would be a blessing. Bless the words of my mouth that they would not only be inspired and inbreathed by you, but that that word would go forth and bear fruit in the hearts and minds of all that hear. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, I'm going to start off with who Martin Luther King was and what he was not. Martin Luther King was an ordained black Baptist preacher. Even when he was giving a scholarly presentation, he had the hum of a black Baptist preacher. That's the reason why, well, we'll get to that later about the I Have a Dream speech. But anyway, he earned his bachelor's starting at 15. He was so brilliant that he got out of school, got through school by the time he was 15. And by the time he was... 1920, he had graduated from Morehouse College in Atlanta, down the street from his church, Ebenezer. He then got a Bachelor of Divinity. Now we call it Masters of Divinity, but in those days they called it a Bachelor of Divinity, BD, at Colgate Rochester Divinity School in New York, state of New York. And then he got his Doctor of Philosophy at Boston University. Some well-known, some un, not so well-known facts about Dr. King was that he was really short. One of the first things that amazed me when I went to the King Center, right in the middle of the opening hall, there's this beautiful presentation, and in it, there's a robe. And I thought, is that one of, you know, Dr. King's children? <laughs> it wasn't, it was him. Some people used to laugh and say that he barely got to five feet. And that's according to sympathetic sources. He also had a photographic memory, which was part of the reason probably why he graduated from high school so well, because everything he heard, everything he read, boop, he had it. He was very popular, both at Colgate, Rochester, and as a uh, doctoral student, because if he read Augustine, he memorized Augustine. So everybody wanted to be in study group with Martin because they would say, Martin would say, yeah, on page 21, it says, da 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 He was like a computer in that sense. He was also tremendously detailed. One of the things that fascinated me when I was doing my dissertation is that Dr. King would write down everything he did as it was happening. He knew his ministry was important. And so like on 1961, on November 2nd, let's say, he talked to, Mar uh, to President Kennedy. He would write down November 1st, November 21st, talk to JFK. And then he would give a summary of what he said. And then he would put down next to it 10.30 a.m. So we have an exact record of Dr. King from himself which is something that a lot of people don't know. He was uplifted. Another fact that's not so well known is that he was uplifted to be the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott because he was the new preacher in town. All the old preachers were afraid that if it didn't go well, they might get kicked out or, at worst, lynched. So they get the new kid in town. Now, why? Because he was the son of the famous Martin Luther King Sr., who had a wonderful church in Atlanta. So if things got hot for this young kid, he could do what? He could get up and leave. 
and go home and be all right. Then nobody got hurt. So that's something that I thought was really interesting when I read about it and when I heard about it. He was, next slide, he was always controversial in the upper echelons of famous black clergy, especially the head of the National Baptist Convention, which is the African-American Baptist Convention. That man's name was Reverend Joseph Jackson of Chicago. And Jackson opposed any idea that came from Martin Luther King. Any idea that came from him, he would oppose it, just on the grounds that Martin Luther King had said it. When Dr. King was given a holiday, they built a road right next to the front door of his church and named it Martin Luther King Avenue. <laughs> he was so upset, he had it closed down, and they rebuilt the door on the other side of the church. <laughs> and this was years after King had died. That's the animus that he created. Now, why? Because some people opposed his ideas, but many more resisted honoring him out of pure jealousy. He was a very human person. He was a spiritual leader on the one hand and a visionary even, while at the same time he struggled with many human weaknesses. I was going to detail them, but my sister Kimberly said, oh, no, don't be talking about his weaknesses, so I'm not going to talk about his weaknesses. <laughs> he aided the United States of America to bring about the beginning of a truly multiracial society, while at the same time, being a man of his time, he was a sexist. His language talks about man, the brotherhood of man. And when he's talking about all human beings, he says all men. So I wanted to say that because I don't speak that way, as you know. I don't speak in that language. But he did because that was the language of his time. He insisted that it was truly possible for all of us to learn how so to love one another despite our fractured racial, uh, racial history that we could, in fact, forgive one another and forgive ourselves. And so many of his best teachings, many of his least known teachings, are about forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? And of course, everyone says forgive the enemy. But he was saying, in our society, we have to learn how to forgive ourselves. He wanted white people to forgive themselves before they asked for black people to forgive them. He spoke to black people that hated white people just on the grounds that they were white because they were terrible to black people and it was structural. He said, we have to learn to forgive white people. That was not very popular. As a matter of fact, wonderful African-American leaders like Malcolm X said that was the worst possible thing you could say to white folks. We don't need to forgive them about anything. So he was very controversial even within the community because there were different voices saying different things. So go on and on to my dissertation, which is entitled Somebodyness, MLK, and the theory of dignity. Although I wanted to write my dissertation about creating a new vision of an anti-sexist, anti-toxic masculinity, and yes, I, I thought of that back in the early 1980s. My dissertation advisor, who was the only African-American tenured person at Harvard Divinity School, no matter how much they talked about being inclusive and liberal, 
He told me there was not enough documentation of such ideas of that subject at the time. So I chose to work on Dr. King's idea of dignity, and I figured that I could parlay that idea into some of my work later on. And uh, I'll, if you're interested, I could tell you how those ideas then form my academic oeuvre for the next 10 years. I was one of the leaders in a group of, called in the American Academy of Religion. Uh, we called ourselves Masculinities in Religion. And we invited women to come in and talk to us. And then we had men talking back. And it was really quite a powerful thing. And I hadn't gone to the American Academy of Religion until this last, when was it, uh, November. Remember when I went to San Antonio. And uh, I looked down to see if the masculinities section was still intact. And it is. And I was very thankful. Anyway, Martin Luther King's primary claim about human dignity was uh, captured early in his public career in the phrase somebodyness. It was a topic that he repeated often early on, and he elaborated it more and more throughout his life to include more and more aspects of his concern for all peoples. So, what are the goals of this sermon this morning? And yes, I'm watching my time because I know I can be loquacious because I'm an African American. Baptist preach too. <laughs> the goal of this sermon is to make it clear that Martin Luther King's message was viewed as radical throughout his public life from 1956 to 1968. When Dr. King first got started, he was opposed by the white establishment and they would call him Martin Luther King Coon. And they said this, and then of course the word Coon in those days was half a step better than the N-word. And I will never forget, because it was something that was recorded, that they were talking about him later on when he went to Alabama and he went to other places. And, and they said, well, what do you think about the, the leader of the group? Well, Martin Luther Coon, I mean King. So, I mean, it was just... They had said it so many times that that was who he was to him. So he was opposed by the white establishment of the South. And then he began a message that with the dream speech and Dr. I mean, and Professor, uh, President Kennedy got on board. And then when he was assassinated, that was probably the best thing for the civil rights movement and LBJ. President Lyndon B. Johnson, because Lyndon Baines Johnson said something that was powerful. He said, only a white Southerner can fix the problem of anti-black people that we have in the South. Only a Southerner, he said, with his six-foot-something frame, and he was a bully of a man. He would lean in with all that height and he would tell, he would get in your face until you submitted to what he said. So doc, uh, Dr. King's message was kind of taken over by the President of the United States. And one of the most important speeches that LBJ ever gave was the speech right before the, the Civil Rights Act was passed where he said at the end, and we shall do this and we shall overcome. So he took the slogan of the civil rights movement and put it in his lips. 
was a very powerful moment. So LBJ and Dr. King got along, as Forrest Gump used to say, like peas and carrots. <laughs> it didn't last forever because Dr. King eventually came out against the Vietnam War that LBJ's whole reputation by that point depended on. April 7th, 1967, Dr. King and the Riverside Church of New York came out against, officially against the Vietnam War. He was told by the civil rights establishment, all the core and NAACP, that this was not what a black leader should be talking about. Get out of the whole Vietnam quagmire. Don't even talk about it. But the more that they jumped on King, the more he decided that this was a signal issue for all Americans, not just for African Americans. People told him, stay in your lane, and he didn't. And then he did something that caused him to be labeled by the FBI the most dangerous person in the United States. And that was this. He organized something called the Poor People's March. And what he was doing in the Poor People's March was going throughout the deep south in the poorest black neighborhood and inviting the poorest white folks that were right next to them to come on in too. And he started talking about a term called economic justice. Economic justice meant all poor people, black, white, Hispanic, or uh, uh, Asian, everybody that was poor could come to this. And that's really what made him persona non grata to the government. It was really only a matter of time before he would be killed, especially labeled as the most dangerous person in the United States. Not the Black Panthers, not the Nation of Islam, Martin Luther King, because King had the personal appeal to get all poor people to see their common problem and to work together. That was a threat. So I want you to know that. King's sayings never suggested that black self-affirmation was reverse racism against whites. And I'll go back to that theme later on. So let's contrast King's words with segregated white worldviews. So I'll start on one side. Blacks, he said, blacks deserve equal respect for both themselves, for black folks, and for whites, and from whites, and whites for themselves. He said, nonviolent resistance to segregated seating on buses would begin a positive reevaluation of black self-respect. Now, the white worldview said all blacks are fundamentally inferior to all whites. This had been stated as such by Henry Calhoun in the 1840s in the Congress, where he stated categorically the Negro is inferior to the white man and should always be kept in his place. It became the cornerstone of what ultimately became the Confederacy. And as you know, there's some controversy about whether slavery had anything to do with the Confederacy. And I will simply tell you 
that the Vice President of the Confederate States of America stated that the bedrock cornerstone of the Confederacy was the principle that the Negro is fundamentally inferior to the white man and therefore ought to always and forever occupy an inferior place as a slave. This is the leader of, one of the leaders of the Confederacy. So if it wasn't the reason, it was certainly one of the reasons, okay? They said that separation, segregation or se separating blacks and whites from each other in all things is quote-unquote natural and it is good because Negroes are inferior. But more than that, I didn't write this down, more than that, segregation believed that any contact that was equal in any way was polluting to white people. So there was this notion of integration was contamination. The KKK put it very powerfully in their expression. Whenever they would have a rally, they would say, we will not believe in this integration because it will lead to the mongrelization of white people. And mongrelization, in case you all don't know, means the mixing of black people and white people. That was something that the KKK would never accept. But the KKK only stated what was actually just the bedrock of segregation. They were just simply saying what every white person had been conditioned to believe. And by every white person, I'm not simply talking about white Southerners. White Northerners were also affected by this. Well, go back to what Dr. King said. He said, secondly, I just had two points here, the Negro has begun to think of himself as somebody with dignity and self-respect. Whereas, The segregated white worldview said any resistance to the segregated system was generated by, quote, outside agitators, by communists, and worst of all, by in-lovers. By the way, in the South, there was only thing more despicable than an in, and that was an in-lover. And if you were known as that, you could be lynched out on the street. Didn't matter that you were white, because you had forfeited your whiteness. So, let's compare views again, part two. Nonviolent resistance is good, said the African-American protesters. They believe that nonviolent protests created a sense of somebodyness because it built a, a sense of dignity and a sense of self-respect. Black agitation was fundamentally dangerous to the white establishment, because they believed that blacks were fundamentally inferior and thus they were not worthy of equal regard or respect. And I know that these things might seem not necessarily important now, but we're struggling right now with an issue of people coming across a border. Should we even call them human beings or simply call them illegal aliens? My daughter and I always laugh at one another whenever we hear aliens. We're like, oh, so they got Ferengi and, and, <laughs> and Klingons. 
and stuff like that. People from Centauri or something. That was aliens, you know, illegal ones. I guess they're all illegal because they came here from another planet. You know, I mean, I mean, that's what I, whenever I hear the word alien, I think of that. But then I was raised in the Star Trek era. What can I say? By contrast, then, the black establishment trying to see nonviolence as a good, they said that segregation, by contrast, and by its nature, instilled a sense of being nobody. So somebody was what happens when we resist the power of segregation and the power of this system. It makes you move from being a nobody or nobodiness to a sense of being somebody or somebodiness. On the other hand, whites believe this, and I made it very dark. Blacks do not belong in the same social space as whites, as equals. To do so diminishes and tarnishes white self-regard and social order. And maybe now, in 2024, just turned, we might think that these ideas are completely out of date there. They're not even worth thinking about. But I have a sense that the residue of them still remains. Our church is somewhat different because, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, 40s, 30s, all the way back, and even up till now, most churches are either all black or all white. The United Methodist Church has made a really valiant effort to try to have integrated churches. But Dr. King said something that is, has, still rings true. 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the United States, and it still remains. So what was the evolution of somebodyness, and how did it widen to this term only dignity? It started in this wonderful speech that King gave on his first address at the Lincoln Memorial, which many people don't know about. He spoke about black dignity, May 17, 1957, years before August 28, 1963, which is where the dream speech happened. He said black dignity could never be attained by humiliating whites. He said, we are not turning the tables on white supremacy by enforcing a philosophy of black supremacy. He said, rather, protest is a, and here we go with this wonderful word that Jane and I always talk about, it is a work of providence, working to free all people. I'll say that again. Resisting these various forms of supremacy is a work of providence where we work to free everybody, all people. And what is the aim? It is, quote, to meet hate with love. And I'll give this extended quote. God is not interested in merely freeing black men and brown men and yellow men. He said this in 1957, by the way. Black, brown, and yellow. God is interested in freeing the whole human race. We must work with determination to create a society in which all men will live together as brothers and respect the dignity and worth 
of human personality. The universe is on our side in the struggle. Stand up for justice. Sometimes it gets hard. It is always difficult to get out of Egypt. The Red Sea always stands before you with discouraging dimensions. Even after you have crossed, you have to move through the wilderness of prodigious hilltops of evil and gigantic mountains of opposition. But keep moving. Let nothing slow you up. Move on with dignity, love, and respectability. Keep moving amid every obstacle, amid every mounting of oppression, and do this with dignity. And when the history books are written in future years, historians will say there lived a great people, a people with fleecy locks and black complexion who injected in the veins of civilization a people who stood up with dignity and honor and saved Western civilization in her darkest hour. For those of you who know about I Have a Dream speech, you might notice that he took some of this from that. He talked about what? The prodigious hilltops. Except it wasn't the hilltops of evil in the dream speech, it was the prodigious hills of Georgia. And then he said, and the curvaceous slopes of California. And then he said, the gigantic mountains of oppression. So he was, he, he was always building throughout his life on various things that he had said. Notice how in the quote that I just did, King deliberately positioned his comments as both against black supremacy and as encouraging black people to see themselves as a great people. So I'll just say this flatly. Dr. King said that black greatness is not at the expense of any other racial group. So what's happening with Dr. King now? And why did I say, what did Martin Luther King, what didn't he not say? And that's because conservatives have sanitized and appropriated Dr. King's sayings. Since the troubled acceptance of the Martin Luther King holiday in 1983 by President Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, resisted it on many grounds, one of which sounded just like the segregated uh, uh, system, he said that probably King was a communist, but then, you know, King, Reagan was always a joker, and so somebody in the, one of the Southern Democrats at that time said, or Southern Democrats had just turned Republicans, <laughs> he said, they said that King was a communist, and Reagan quipped, well, we won't know till 2025. 2025 is when the FBI will open up all their documents about Dr. King. So in 2025, I'll probably have to come back and talk about what they supposedly have discovered. So that's what happened in 1983, but it wasn't accepted nationwide until 2000. 
The conservative Republicans that we can trace now through the Tea Party and the MAGA spokespersons now have appropriated and redefined Martin Luther King as, quote, an American hero. They have appropriated King to say that King would be against affirmative action. And finally, they would use King to say that he was anti-reverse racism. Now, where does all of this come from? I will not take up the whole morning, but I will say it came from this. It came from a narrow presentation of one of the phrases in his most famous I Have a Dream speech. It is this one little phrase that has become the bedrock of the conservative appropriation and redefinition of who Martin Luther King is and was. It was the phrase, I have a dream that one day my four little children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This quote has been cited by conservative Republicans from Ronald Reagan when he was, you know, officially opening up the day as a new national holiday to today's MAGA party. It is a proof text for their ongoing agenda to cherry pick parts of the sayings of famous black leaders. And by famous, I mean primarily Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King. They don't even really include black women at all. As part of what I call their revisionist history of the United States. This version of history distorts American history into saying that African slaves were really just servants. By the way, that is taught here in Texas. There are many curricula, but they won't talk about anybody's black people being slaves. They were just servants. And our most famous black leaders are falsely swallowed into an overarching narrative of pseudo-inclusion into a version of America as including everybody since 1776. And it's important for you to know about this when you hear various people that don't seem to be at all pro-black quoting Dr. King. Like Ron DeSantis. Like Nikki Haley. Like, you want me to mention any names? Oh, it is? Okay, well, I won't say it. Furthermore, this conservative revisionist history recasts all affirmative action programs as really attempts to consciously, and, and, and any attempts to actually consciously include more diverse racial and ethnic groups are seen as viciously anti-American and a form of reverse racism. And as such, affirmative action is interpreted as turning the tables on whites and Asians too and making whites suffer the effects of racism. That would require another sermon. But I'll simply say, quickly, in conclusion, Martin Luther King's view of affirmative action was stated very clearly before affirmative action was instituted by Richard Nixon in 1970. King was dead by this time. But in the spring of 1968, Mere months before he was killed, Dr. King gave a little-known speech 
which was recorded at his last meeting with the Southern Christian leadership leaders. In it, he outlines how whites have benefited from affirmative action by presidential leadership since the mid-1840s. He speaks about how Andrew Jackson called for white settlers to come create farms in the territory of Kansas and gave them land grants. He spoke about how FDR's New Deal gave white farmers government aid to replant the trees in their Dust Bowl, um, you know, uh, ravaged lands, and to reclaim their farms, therefore, from the disasters of the 1930s. And FDR and later Truman supported the GI Bill, which financed both college education and new homes for white veterans from 1944 officially to 1956. He said, why are they so upset about helping African-Americans if this is historical for white Americans to receive? I'll just leave that for you to contemplate. So what are my conclusions? King never decried any policies or government programs that were designed to generate positive institutional support and the goals of diversity of race, class, and ethnicity. He wanted a more visible presence of a wider selection of United, citizen, United States citizens than merely white men. Martin Luther King never named such programs as reverse racism. If you hear someone doing that, they are misappropriating him. And King, based on the very speeches that I quoted, would surely have been open to redefining affirmative action to include, as he did in 1967 and 68, poor whites and other impoverished Americans and persons. He would include all underserved groups, including the disabled, including those that we don't see as fully human. So what does this mean for us today? What this means for us today is that the work of justice, of helping to create a stream of righteousness that's ever flowing, it goes on. And I want you to leave here encouraged to keep on doing that good work and making, as John Lewis said so famously, good trouble. God bless you. Now receive this benediction. As you leave this place, go and follow the kings of old and continue on the road that leads to the Son of God and the light of life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we start a new sermon series, What the Bible Doesn't Say, as we celebrate the season after Epiphany. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.